time has come to retool our play for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, the future of strings. This is where we talk to some of the leading string players in the progressive string community about how we do what we do, why we do what we do, how to advocate for what we do. If we're uh, teachers and want to uh, get our programs going in our schools, we need to be able to advocate and tell our administrators just exactly why you need to have progressive strings and not just the good old-fashioned classical stuff that we all know and love. And I have got somebody on the show today, Diana Ladio, who is going to bring all of her wealth of knowledge. If you are lucky enough to have had the Moxie strings come to your school, you will know Diana as the fiddle player from that duo, and uh, they do a ton of school outreach work and great um, progressive instruction for string players all over the country, bringing all kinds of uh, cool grooving aspects to uh, a lot of string players who are just not familiar with that stuff yet, and we're going to talk about that and... She's also a Billboard Top 10 Classical Crossover Artist 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Diana? It's true. It's true. <laughs> and a Top 20 Classical Record that year as well. So that's super cool. Not just an educator, a performer of the highest level. And I'm so proud to have you here on the show. Thanks for taking some time to chat with us. It is an honor, Tracy. Thanks so much for the invite. Yeah, yeah. You were also a member of the Elders for quite a few years, weren't you? Yes, and they're making a little bit of a resurgence, so I consider myself oh, nice. tag-teaming again. So, oh, good. Yeah. Are you still playing with them? Yes. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, nice. new album coming out, so lots of excitement fluttering around. Very, very cool. Well, you know, there was a, a, a little statement on your website that caught my eye. And I will quote, uh, having made the exploratory journey from classical music to a world of eclecticism and musical creativity, the band, this is the Moxie Strings we're talking about, has now dedicated their careers to helping young musicians make this life-changing and transformative transition. And that's exactly what I would like to talk about. How you do that, how you go about making this life-changing, transformative transition for young string players. Absolutely. Well, I've built my life around it, so how yes. much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> All the time you need, Diana. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I feel like we were very lucky to 
begin that life-changing transformation of our playing a little bit later in life. And I think I went from feeling very held back by that and kind of frustrated that it took us so long. And for me, it was high school. I started to be introduced. I had a really wonderful kind of fiddle, extracurricular fiddle program in high school, um, the Chelsea House Orchestra outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I, so I was introduced to it, but it wasn't until I met Allie in early college that we actually started going to some camps and really figuring out how much was there for us and how much more that we could do. Um, and I remember feeling like, wow, there's, we, should have been, we should have been on this so much earlier than this. You know, How did it take us this long? Take but this at, so long, you mean just after out of high school? <laughs> yes. Well, and the story is, so we um, we have performance degrees. I went to the University of Michigan and Allie went to Western Michigan. Allison yeah. Lynn is the other member of the yeah. Moxie Strings who I neglected to mention in my intro. No, I have a tendency because we did that, that journey together to kind of say we, but that's yeah, who I'm No, that's saying. fine. Yeah. That's fine. I just yeah. wanted to, to make sure we all know who she is. Yeah. Um, so we, we were both highly immersed in our, our classical degrees when we started what we called jamming, which you guess you could call jamming, but I don't think that we really understood what jamming even meant at the time. Hmm. Um, and so one summer we decided, okay, we really want to take this on. And to be honest, her dad started giving us albums to listen to, one of which was Casey Dreesen and Hanukkah oh, wow. Castle and Natalie McMaster and was just, so we went down this, you know, rabbit hole of YouTube videos, which was very, very, in its early days, YouTube was very, <laughs> in its early existence. Um, and we decided that we needed to go actually take on one of these camps. So we went out to Mark O'Connor's seminar out in San Diego. Um, and. I guess the best way that I that I could describe it is that we weren't really feeling totally at home in the orchestral world. You know, we we the 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 schools are great, but I, we weren't you know standing out. And part of that was because we were spending our weekends jamming with each other when the rest right. of a lot of the class our classmates were nine ten hours in the practice room all weekend. Um, but we knew that we wanted to figure out where we fit. And then we go out to Mark O'Connor's camp and we see the Nat Smiths who were about 10, 10 years old at the time, just yep. improvising circles around us. And we're yeah. pressed up against, you know, the, the wall of a banquet hall of a banquet room, watching this jam happen and feeling so far behind. And I guess that's where I'm going with that is I think we were thrown into a community where they start very, very young, you know, bluegrass and many string players in, in general. Um, so... I say now that it it feels actually very beneficial that we did that a little later in life. I've shifted my perspective on this because um, I was getting a dual degree at the time, um, have always loved teaching, so I was getting a music education degree also. So I was already beginning to kind of think pedagogically um, and orient my brain not to just receive information, but then figure out how to store it so that I could then you know pass it on and make it yeah. more accessible. Um, and I think that ended up being really to, to my benefit, to be able to create an experience that, yeah, that was accessible based on my experience, but um, that maybe improvisers and people who started this journey when they were much younger and weren't thinking that way might not have quite as easy a time doing. So Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So what is a typical program look like and what's the material you use and how do you take kids who have never seen anything outside of, you know, a straight up classical uh, piece of music 
get them off the page. And... Right, right. Well, the the beautiful thing, not to get too philosophical about music, is yes. that everybody enjoys it to a degree. So even yeah. though they might not see their instrument as existing outside of the orchestral world, they all love some type of music. You know, it is it is central to their found to them as humans. And we always say like, when you leave the classroom, what are you going to put on in your AirPods? When, as soon as you can go into the zone, right. you know? Um, and we try to look for a way to harness that and bridge the gap between the instrument that they're holding in orchestra and whatever that music is that they love so much, because it is all one art form, but I think it's very easy to create a pretty deep divide and to remind them, you know, that not only is it all one art form, but you by being able to read music and, you know, have, we, we teach you classical music because we can teach so many of you at once, but it, it creates such wonderful foundation. And I think I'm very careful in my dialogue with them not to ever sound anti-classical because mm -hmm. um, we do, we do still absolutely yep. love, love that. Um, exactly. And exactly. yeah, owe a lot of our comfort on our instruments, et cetera, to, to having come from that tradition. Um, but yeah, to, to just expand mindsets to, to the instruments that they enjoy existing outside of the orchestral world. And now, thanks to podcasts like this and all of you guys out there, there are examples of string players playing literally every type of genre. Yep. Um, and YouTube, and, YouTube and, and Apple Music and Spotify make it even more accessible. So it's fun to be able to hand them lots of resources and examples to back up what, what we're telling them. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, the, that's the general concept. That's the message, you know, mm -hmm. that they're, they're learning a skill that can be so fun and versatile and, and exist in the world that they love in addition to, to in, the, in the orchestral and classical world. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, moment in, in the world, but in, in, in string pedagogy, in that suddenly... You know, in the last five years or still, or maybe ten, you know, there's been this uh, ability for kids to just find this content, and it's really mostly in the last few years that this has happened, and and I feel like this huge obstacle that we've had as educators, which is to to not to to assure people that we're not complete freaks, like you know, we're, I'm not the only one in the world doing this, you know. <laughs> Um, this isn't just my idea to play jazz on a violin. You know, there are hundreds of, of people out there. And that sense of community is incredibly powerful, I think. Um, and, and just the awareness that, you know, that sense of, um, you're not going to be the only one doing this. You're not. You're not a freak. You're not weird or something for, for f discovering things like that on your instrument, even on your own, which some kids do. And like, what do I do with this? I just figured out how to make these cool guitar-y sounds. You know, um, <laughs> to find there are other people out there. So, uh, I hope we're on the like on the, just getting over like turning a corner in the pedagogical world. It feels that way. Does that feel that, uh, that way at all to you when you're on the ground where you are dealing with kids? Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you said on the ground. I was going to say on the front lines. Yeah. <laughs> Word yeah. from the front lines yeah. is, yeah, that boots on the ground is absolutely. <laughs> and I think it kind of goes without saying that the students would latch on to something like this. Like as soon as you tell them that, 
I think the one that always gets them is that Allie has played behind Kanye West yeah. at the Aspen <laughs> Music Festival several years ago, and we try to drop some like street cred in, you know. Exactly. And so then, so they so they kind of like wake up to that one, just as an example of one of the many things that you know is available to them as string players. So it, the kids are on board, and that that is usually not a problem. But what it, I'm seeing more and more now um, is how open-minded the teachers are. And granted, if they have brought me or us in, they already are right. acknowledging that they have, there, that there are maybe gaps in what they're able to offer, or that they were taught one thing and they know their students need something else. Um, I get chills thinking about this because the humility involved in that is, yes. is so admirable, you yes, know, and we, we commend the, the teachers for that. Yeah. And having come from getting an, edu- an education degree, I graduated in 2010, and I know that they've come a long way since then. Um, but there were definitely things missing both in the professional kind of behind the scenes sense and then also in the actual p- performing and playing sense. Um, and so I can really identify with how, I won't say misled, but how the, they weren't necessarily feeling fully equipped coming out of their, their of music education degree. Of yeah. course. And, I, and I, you made a great point about the humility that that takes on the part of teachers to... Uh, to recognize that, um, and I think it's uh, it's really important for a lot of string teachers who are in that position to know that what we're suggesting, this idea of bringing in new uh, ideas, um, is not we're that we're not uh, sort of revolutionary and, and and trying to displace what they're doing. Uh, it's like a second language that we want to add to what they're already doing. Um, but also just to, to remind them that the kids need all that classical stuff just as much as they need this. So we're not trying to push it out. We're just trying to add something to it. I couldn't agree more. I think that's so eloquently put because I do think teachers are under a lot of pressure, particularly for in, an or- in an, the orchestral side of what they do. And... Um, often we find that, you know, our March and April's are packed or something like that. It's, it's usually like October and March because they're what don't compete with festival season and administrators want to see those numbers, you know, those tick marks. Um, and so yes, asking them to balance, making sure their program looks good from that sense. And then also convincing them and, and their understanding so much more than ever that, uh, a, a concert that they can invite their administrators to where they see their kids playing like a rock tune or fiddle music or improvising or a cover that they might they might recognize it's that that can also be transformative for the program exactly. you know and the administrators exactly. don't even know to don't even know to see that but exactly um, i've always called it like kind of our version of the marching band or the jazz band as seeing exactly. it's just that's what makes it more accessible to the to the community and and also the administrators to see the yeah. the experience they're getting make it make it connection make it connect for them too of course it's the front facing part of it that that people see uh and the the big uh i, I think argument to advocate for this we're talking about giving people tools to advocate uh, is how much better the kids are going to play their classical music because of this. And uh, for one thing, the other another advocate advocation point is uh, the um, the way you're going to keep kids involved, and you won't have the attrition that you might otherwise have because they're playing material they know and love. 
those are all super important to the classical part of the program. So absolutely. I, yeah. So I think it's really important uh, to say that. And the other thing, here's another argument, if I may, is that if you're playing tunes like a Kanye tune or something cool, a hip hop, whatever, Beyonce, you're going to get a lot of other kids who are not in the orchestra, their friends who are going to show up and go, yeah, this is cool, and start making some noise out in the audience, and suddenly this becomes a whole different social situation for those kids, rather than being, you know, sort of isolated in the orchestra. Oh, absolutely. And I'm just like nodding furiously. <laughs> I'm going to shut up and let this, you talk. No, trying not to jump in with all of my, yes, absolutely, <laughs> preach, Tracy, you know, because, oh my gosh, absolutely. And, um, I started a nonprofit a couple years back with this in mind specifically oh, wow. because yeah because um, we realized that we were reaching a lot of the same demographic and it was all districts that could that could afford to have clinicians in yes I saw and, that tell me know, the name of it what's the name of it's the called Fendi? the Mox the Mox project the Mox project yeah. Yeah, and um, so that's been that's been really wonderful to see but the motivation behind that was that we knew that the students who maybe could benefit from these ideas the most were tucked in programs that could never afford to have like the luxury of guest artists come visit. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. they're making, trying to make sure their, their instruments have four strings. Right. Um, and so I guess all of this is to say, if we're, if we're pleading the case that, that we really need to have, pro I, I love that you're, you're calling it progressive string playing um, in the, the orchestral scenario. So we're, we're talking about rallying administrators and how, um, you know, it's a, it's a face for the community and they make them better classical players. But if the, the foundation for it really is that music and being a musician just creates a completely different life experience and it can be empowering and improvising and being actually being creative on your instrument can celebrate that we all have different voices on our instruments. Yes. And, you know, these larger concepts come, yes. come just cascading in and again chills because oh, yeah. this you know i could talk for days about this. well the sheer um, collaborative value of oh, working totally. in a group like that for a common cause for something that creates beauty uh whatever your definition of beauty is some some people that may be kanye um <laughs> you know uh that i mean the, unfortunately the value of that that seems obvious to us um will sometimes uh, go right over the head of somebody who's only interested in uh, a bottom line or whatever their job is. But um, yeah. I have a question for you more specifically about sure. how you do this. Yeah. So when you do something like material that the kids are more familiar with, how do you do that? Do you ask them about like suggest a tune? Do you bring in recent hits? Uh, how do you go about defining those tunes? Well, in the absence of having the time to prepare a new clinic for every school, which would be my dream if we could do that. Um, and, you know, I think we're I think getting closer to that point. Um, we send kind of a questionnaire ahead of time that at least allows us to orient the, the kind of the scale that we might teach or the, or the direction we might go. Mm -hmm. But I'd say the majority of the time um, we teach a tune that we've written, um, but that uses, usually it's the D blue scale. Right. And it, and we'll watch as we take D major and morph it, you know, just lower some notes, take some notes out, add an A flat. All of a sudden yep. they're playing, they're playing something different in their hands and you just kind of see 
the the eyebrows raise a little bit and you we we know that we're on the right track and we and we pause in those moments to say you know here's what we started on d major land it's wonderful we wouldn't trade it for anything but there are there's another combination of whole and half steps that exist on your instrument that allow you to exist and feel in a different world and feel completely different um, so I always say like kind of in my little speech that I try not to get too long winded at the beginning of these clinics. Um, but that there are several skills that make stepping outside the orchestral world possible. And that's what we're going to focus on in our clinic today. Yes. And I, yeah, I think that is one thing that if I have one qualm with some of what is happening in the string clinician world. It's that we can wow them and present this amazing opportunity and, and give them these ideas of how much else is out there. But if we don't equip them with the skills and maybe a couple next steps to actually go about it, yeah. it's possible we might actually be doing a little bit of a disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the teachers too. And I know I've done presentations at ASTIG, you have too, and there's a lot of us that are understanding the importance of, of accessing those that are in front of the students because they're the ones that are creating the environment and that are going to allow them to foster these ideas and, you know, go on this exploratory journey afterwards. And, you know, coming and going in this like big flashy experience, but then they go back to orchestra on Monday and they're back to, you know, reading their, their relatively stale orchestra arrangements, you know, I'm yeah. not, not thinking of any in particular. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, it just, it could make it seem, you know, even further away than, yeah. so that is all to say, um, we, we focus on just a couple skills and one of them is, is ear training, ear learning, um, and the other is improvisation. And I, I we don't, I mean, ears, yes, but we don't claim to be masters of improvisation. It's been transformative for both of us. And I, I mean, I love it. I use it all the time. It, it truly changed my life musically. And so I'm obviously a huge advocate for creativity being included in the classroom. But it is such, we know that it's with two, in, when two hours with a group, we're only going to be planting seeds of ideas and offering right. some skills and ideas to go forward, right. you know, and, uh, and I'm okay with that because that is more or less what happened with me. You know, I didn't necessarily need to be shown the type of music that I right. loved and made my life about. I just needed to be introduced to this idea that there is so much more out there and that I have the opportunity to figure out what music I love to play, what my musical life could look like. Here are a couple ideas in terms of how, how to go about it. And here are a couple skills that by introducing them, a whole world opens up. So yep. Yep. by being able Key. to take, t- yeah, exactly, literally, these little portals, yeah. yeah. Um, so we, to answer your question in a very typical Diana Longwood fashion, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we start, we, we figure out the musical language, so we go from D major to D blues, and that sets the tone for improvisation, because we're not really looking at it as a key being, you know, being read from a page. It's, this is the collection of notes we're using. Right. So we use those notes to learn the tune by ear, which then they also have it memorized. And then we take that same collection of notes, and the, the next step in the process would be to use them to, to improvise. And so I use the analogy that, or metaphor, that if it's as if we're handing you all a blank sheet of paper, but giving you all the same, like, five or six crayons, you know, and in this case, it's, it's literally six crayons. Um, and so you have the ability to, to really express and, nice. and draw and color whatever you'd like. And if we hung them up, they would look like a series, you know, and they'd all fit in the same frame, which is the bass line nice. that Allie's playing. And nice. um, it just seems to lock together as yes. the two hours goes along. Yeah. That's great. So it's really enjoyable. And 
I have to, I have to say the, I have a like chills, tearful moment in every single clinic. Honestly, I can't think of one in the last couple of years where we haven't had a moment like this, but it is so validating because we will encourage students to take improvised solos. And obviously you've experienced too, the older they get, the the more terrified they are. And so fifth graders, everybody wants to volunteer. And in high school, we, it's pulling teeth. And I do think it's important as you know, too, to create like a really warm celebratory environment, make them feel really, really safe. Yeah. Um, but after every clinic, or I'll notice it, and most of the time teachers comment on it too, the first to volunteer to improvise are very, very rarely in the front rows. In fact, most of them are in the back two rows, if not the last chair, you know? And don't get me started on how I feel about ranking in the orchestra, yeah. but it's, it is so obviously the student that is that is there because they love music and they love the idea of playing an instrument. But for whatever reason, there's, there's, there's something standing in the way from them really feeling successful in the classical world. And it might be, you know, showing, it might just be the fact that they don't read music well, or that sight reading isn't their thing, you know, or that practicing things that they don't enjoy is difficult for them, which I can relate to. Yeah. And so to see that they finally have been offered this lane that they can fly down faster than the rest of the people around them. And you see the the kids in the orchestra go, is, is Benny really standing up to volunteer right now? Um, And I I live for that moment. And ultimately that's what led to the Mox project a little bit too, because it, that, would be reach how many kids more reach more of those kids. There are whole orchestras of that of that yep. back row. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, it's pretty it's pretty powerful experience. It's been very rewarding career this far. I bet. Yeah. It's it's so powerful for kids to see that you know um, you might be uh, ranking in your in your head you know below the other players who can play violin better than you and they're more classical and you're like eh, just not getting it and then you suddenly you realize oh i'm good at this and i've got a natural talent for this i can ca- i feel the groove right away and while you know whatever it's just such a uh, um what's the word uh reassuring thing for so many so many kids who who didn't realize they had talent basically you know you mean you could be 13 14 year old years old and you just think i kind of suck at this and then you suddenly realize wait a second i'm actually really good at this i just maybe suck at that little part of it (laughs) or i don't really like that part and i don't really care (laughs) about that part you know but i really care about music and about the creative part. So that's kind of what happened to me. I know I don't want to make this about me, but no, my, sto- my story a little bit was, um, you know, I, I was very into classical music, but eventually, but finally sort of felt like I needed to leave it because it wasn't creative. It wasn't about creating music. It was about recreating music. Uh, and while I love doing that and interpreting great works, there was a whole big part of that process which was being left out. The exploring, creating, coming up with stuff that you don't like and throwing it away and trying to come up with something else. And for for that kid in the back of the second violins, may just not get off on that part, but maybe a super creative musician and just never had that outlet to do that. Absolutely. You know? In fact, that same kid might sit down at the piano and bang something out or sit down, pick up a guitar and and 
may know a few chords and have a great time, but just struggles on the violin. So if you can kind of make that connection from the music they love and can do instinctively over to their stringed instrument, that's that bridge. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's not only powerful for the student to be offered that, you know, just that empowerment. Oh, wow, this validation that I knew I was here for a reason and this just isn't working for me. But look at what I can do. Like you said, I have an amazing set of skills. It's just not this very specific set of skills that 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 is celebrated in an orchestral setting. But I also am finding that it is really powerful for the teachers to be introduced to the fact that this student is capable of so much, you know, or there's there's probably a handful of them. And, you know, if they. Again, if they've brought one, one or the one or both of us in, they already acknowledge, you know, that there's more they want to be able to offer their students. So they're already open-minded to this idea. But if they need any convincing that this there's such a benefit to incorporating this some of this progressive stuff in their program, seeing the kid who they can't get to read a note show up and improvise is usually yeah. uh, all they need to see to understand that you know how many more people are going to get caught in this musical net if they. provide a more diverse experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. I I would love to know a little bit about um, the sort of the groove aspect of how you do this. So you teach them the minor, um, uh, the D minor pentatonic scale. Um, You're playing some blues. How do you bring the rhythm? Because I know rhythm is a very big part of what you do and how you reach a lot of those kids in the back of the second violin section. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we talk a lot about, I guess we do use the word groove quite a bit um, because it, uh, you know, this, it, ex- it exists in every genre, you know, and this is for me bringing in, and I remember unlocking this somewhere along the line in my playing that we talk a lot about, and I think a lot about the idea of authenticity and how to truly sound authentic to the to the genre of music that yes. you're, you know, aiming and and what are you mimicking? And yes. um, I think it was Jeremy Kittle that really introduced me to the mimicking idea. You know, is it is it voice? Is it the horns? Is it the lead guitar? Um, and that that was really transformative for me because that that is so important to me learning learning some of this a little bit later in life meaning not when i was 10 years old that it is so important to almost be as respectful to the genre of music that you're the route that you're going by doing everything you can to really um be authentic and and do what you can to learn everything you need to about it to sound Mm -hmm. and and be respectful of it so that being said that's pretty you can access that I won't say easily, but it's a little more tangible in the left hand um, because, you know, it's the Irish trill versus a bluegrass slide or thinking about how you would shape, you know, how uh, a horn would shape a note if you're going to like really wail in some type of jazz setting. But the 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 right uh, right hand is often over overlooked you know and the rhythmic differences in all of those styles and how to create the Irish lilt versus the bluegrass subdivisions is um, that's that one is more abstract mm-hmm. I I would say um, and I feel like there are still times I was just um, sifting through the fiddle hell videos um, from their <laughs> from their April session last year and I mean. I have been playing Irish music for a decade now, and there are still things that I'm learning in terms of like the intuitive nature of the lilt, even if it's something that I'm doing intuitively but didn't have a name for it, you know? And that's what I love the idea of being able to teach it. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, so, so thinking about right hand is something that um, I feel like happened even later than the idea of thinking about authenticity on the left hand. And one of the things that in the step, in the, in the process that we walk students through, the idea of adding an accompaniment part is, is huge because it kind of unlocks the ability for them to create their own ensemble too. And so we'll take whatever style that we've decided to approach with them that day and then take it from the left hand to the right hand and okay, how are we gonna make it authentic and feel natural in our right hands as well? And often if we have a short time with students, we break down what Allie's doing, but we don't always necessarily teach it, but it is my favorite to have a, a day with students and really be able to take this apart. Um, because adding a rhythmic accompaniment to whatever they've learned by ear, if our idea is to equip them with the ability to go through this process on their own, this is a pretty important step and goes from students learning a melody, you know, via a YouTube tutorial to a bluegrass tune, and then adding some type of rhythmic chordal accompaniment, then it's a band, you know, that brings it to life. Yep. Um, and so we see it kind of as an important step in terms of equipping them for the future too. So a lot of times it's stromboing, to be honest, because it's accessible and it's something that they um, allows lots of diff different rhythmic patterns. If you understand the concept, you know, just depending mm -hmm. on what notes you accent and don't. Yep. And, and so that's often we sometimes we get so far as chopping and getting to include some of those techniques. But for the most part, it's OK here are here's the basic idea of chords here's what we're using in this particular key and here's how to allow your right hands to provide rhythmically what what you're hearing maybe on a recording or what you're what you're hearing Allie do um, yeah it's it, it's a light bulb for sure cool and do you apply that to um, to a, a modern pop tune that you're doing, whatever that tune is, or bluegrass, whatever, you um, break it down sort of to the subdivision for them, or are you using a particular uh, etude from, from my book, or, or how are you applying that? Just well, yeah, absolutely. It's the way that we, as, as I'm sure you do too, we take it from the classical world, something that they would understand, and morph it into something that is more intuitive and more groove-based. Um, so we might start with them just, and we might use the term 16th notes and just have them going back and forth on the string. And then I think normally what we would do is say, okay, here are the notes that we want to highlight, play this combination of notes. And we'll do that, but with all the rests involved. And then we'll, we'll take it from the 16th notes into still highlighting those notes that we played with the rests, except our bow never stops in between. Right. And so we'll take, yeah, depending on what tune we're learning or what the genre is. Um, I love, I've been doing a few clinics on my own and I really love working with a pop tune. And the one that we've been working with more recently is um, Blinding Lights, The Weeknd. Mm -hmm. And so what's nice about it is the, the beat is pretty... Um, I was, I've been using some chopping in this one, but the beat is pretty uniform, the whole tune, you know, and it just right. kind of lends itself to accessing the right hand. And that do cha, do do cha is when, when break, when broken down, it can, it can be done. And I find that it's, um, another one of those wake up calls for students that they can make sounds that are reminiscent to what they love listening to. Yeah. And the beauty of using a tune they're familiar with is, is that they get the groove. You don't have to explain what the groove is. They 
feel it. They're they're as soon as you put it on, they're like, oh yeah, okay, now we can dance and move. They like it's a invitation for them back to the music they're familiar with, uh, and usually that's accompanied with a with a certain amount of natural body language, right? Right. Absolutely. That, have you noticed Absolutely. that's the case? As yes. soon as you put on, like, you know, you go, we're no longer doing the gavotte in G, and now we're doing, you know, like a Beyonce tune or whatever, or the weekend tune. And then suddenly the kids are like, okay, now I, I, I can relax. I can move my body again. I can, you know, um, dig the music the way we, you know, they do as, as kids. Uh, and that connection, to me, that's critical that's the center of all the rhythmic playing the more i teach it the more i realize that it's just the way you move your body oh i couldn't i love that and i'm i'm not sure i've really thought about i'm I'm not sure i've really taken that part of it apart in my brain but yes it's do we start from scratch teaching them what the idea of groove is or do we just access what is so obviously already just central to who they are you know the ability to move to the music that they love oh yeah i love i love that and the important piece of that, and this is something that I, I, I'm so focused on and, and hoping that I can really find some way to do this in the future, is to move them, for them to associate their instrument, their stringed instrument, their cello, their violin, their viola, whatever, with the music they love. That this this is how you play a weekend tune. This is how you play a Beyonce tune or whatever is on, your, on strings. That this is not some... This is not weird. This is you just uh, put the two and two together, uh, and and you know it's sort of like why reinvent the wheel when it's just right there and all you have oh, to do right is let them hold their instrument while you're listening to the song and what and happens totally, right totally <laughs> yeah and I think we met, I mentioned several examples when I'm kind of talking about how to how to bridge that gap and usually I'll say something like. Um, those artists that you're thinking about, you know, when you're really thinking about who's who's connecting to you, they probably recorded with a string section. They probably tour with a string section. The sounds that they make, which are usually electronic in nature, can be made on string instruments. But even more than that, we can actually recreate so many parts of that of that track using our string instruments, you know. And I I think that is something that is that's very new because we may in decades past been able to create some of the rhythms and and certainly play the melody lines but now with chopping and just the different percussive ways we're using our bows I and mean, yeah. it's you can you can get pretty close you know it's it's instantly recognizable for people and yeah. i agree that even if it's even if they're not going to create a career in writing cover and doing string covers which turns out you can do <laughs> these days yeah. but even even aside from that the activity and the ability to bridge to yeah like you said to, br- to bridge the gap can be can be huge yeah Yes, yes. And I'm really interested in what you're doing with beats and EDM stuff uh, creatively in your own musical world. Uh, I'm fascinated to know what direction you're, you're taking with that because that's exactly what I'm doing as well. I, uh, my last record was with my, uh, my son's beats and I'm planning on doing Love another it. one uh, this summer. Um, and so I'm really curious how your journey with that is going. Oh, I, I've I've heard that, and I don't think I realized they were your son's beats. Oh, wow. that is awesome, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay, so you've got a DJ in house. Exactly. That would make that would make life 
it's very different. I yeah. got a producer. I got a, a beat producer. <laughs> Killer. Well, and I, I just came from um, the Durango Songwriters Conference this past weekend, and getting to chat with lots of producers from more of an electronic standpoint has been very, yeah. very exciting. So I'm still even processing so much um, recent knowledge and how exciting this is. So, yeah, if, if what we're constantly telling students is the music they love is accessible to them, I love being an example of that because I love electronic music. I love dancing. I love everything about like feeling the pulse and um, some of my absolute favorite artists I'm realizing, which I gravitated towards naturally and then finally kind of started learning a little bit more about them, are often beats focused, but the one that I'm thinking of specifically has a classical vocal degree. And so I started to figure out that the common thread between the artists that I was I was really, really called to was was beats and just like really tasteful loops, but also with this beautiful melody on top. And that in, in many ways is, is kind of fun, fundamental to the moxie strings. It's, it, our string instruments lend themselves to those, yeah. to those melodies. And I mean, um, I have always loved just melody in general. And um, I think to, to be able to combine both of those worlds has been really, really exciting for me. So I, I've taken apart a couple tunes. I have a whole Spotify playlist that I call Homework that I've had for several years, and I'll just take one of those and use it as like a case study of figuring out what sounds they're making and nice. and where they're where they're adding their drops and builds and you know what they take out here and what they drop back in here and yep. um, but with the idea that maybe instead of the voice that that ends up being a violin and some of the some of the tubular bells or whatever they're using to create some of those subdivisions can also be done on violin as well. So yeah. figuring out, yeah, figuring out what in the track could maybe be recreated and what is really great in its original kind of produced form and where it can be accented by violin. And for being in Nashville and enjoying so many songwriters, I lyrics are kind of last on my list. I love writing. I really love writing. Um, the blog, everything, you know, it's a big part of my life, but... Right. I feel like my philosophy there is there needs to be all words and very little music or all music and very few words. And some of my favorite bands yeah. without realizing it are the, 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 the track could be, you know, the same lyrical melody on the same word over and over again. And I've, I've talked with other um, musicians of all forms that have said, you know, I, I just don't really hear lyrics because I'm such an instrumentalist and I'm thinking about so many of the layers and textures that are happening that it's almost like you shut off that ability in your brain to understand the English language. <laughs> and I, you know, it's just there, it's there, but it's an instrument in the texture. It's not so much about the words that they're saying. Right. Um, and so I've been exploring that because with that in mind, a violin could replicate those sounds pretty easily, even though it doesn't have words or lyrics associated to it. Right. Um, do you get into um, replicating parts of the groove and not the melody part on your on your instrument, or are you doing most of that like in Ableton with with uh, synths and and drum machines? I a little of both because I, well, and I've recently taken on the challenge of creating an orchestra arrangement with a little bit of electronic music and stromboing in mind. So ah, that okay. yeah, that was my that was my excuse to really be thinking about how to highlight some of these cool rhythms and sounds and loops, but in a way that um, could be done on strings, but then also in a way that 
they weren't doing a bunch of stopping and starting and lifting and setting because as you know that's that's where we run into trouble so um yeah that was that was a fun challenge because it can definitely be done but without that idea of like kind of that consistency which is what electronic music is is built around you know it's just the same that and it's that's where my worlds collide absolutely can you give us a little example of that yeah um one of the things that I was doing in the orchestra arrangement really was was strombowing related, and that they were going from quarter notes to eighth notes. This is a high school orchestra arrangement, so it's nothing super complex. But right. then building to sixteenths, and then adding, you know, going from sixteenths with kind of a one two three one two three one two to all of a sudden being right on the beat, which would mimic a lot of what. Um, but going from. to right on the downbeat. Even just that build, it, it emulates exactly what you'd feel in the club when all of right. a sudden, like, the whole feeling is like, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there, yes. oh my gosh, and then... Yep. And then, it, and then it finally drops, you know? And that's the feeling I live for. And I know actually a lot of students are pretty into it too. But yeah. students aside, that's what's been really fun for me is just figuring out how to emulate some of what's going on in those electronic music awesome. tracks. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, and actually, yeah. I, had that, I had that kind of highlighted this weekend too is, um, you know, they were saying like, we love what you're doing because you, you showcase, you kind of play some of your, your tunes for them. And they said, we love what you're doing and this is actually probably good information from the pop and and um, production world. They wanted me to be doing more of what was in the track on violin. So there you go, because that's what would make it different or unique. Yep. You know, exactly. So. Yeah. Exactly. This is my yeah, whole yeah. vision for the future in a nutshell, is to get string players who know how to do this into studios on records where kids are listening to this stuff and it just weaves into our popular culture and so that strings are just there and it's no longer some weird thing to have strings showing up doing something like that rhythmic i mean we're all used to having strings playing you know lines and string section stuff but i'm talking about strings being more part of the rhythm section Uh, absolutely i mean it's life-changing it's the reason that the moxie strings exist because it's it's violin and then and then cello doing the majority of the rhythmic stuff and yeah i love the idea now i mean it's i don't think it's far off that strings with i I mean my solo show goals are to be up there with a laptop you know because that's those are those are my worlds combined and i i will say too just um because it's fresh on my mind coming, I was one of the only strings players at this conference this past weekend, and everybody was excited by the idea of having strings on their record. And so we're there to pitch to TV and film like panels, but all of the rest of the songwriters just all they wanted to all they wanted to talk about was how strings could fit on their project, wow. and, huh. and lyrically and rhythm and rhythmically. And and so yeah. Huh. From from a totally different world, I can relay that that we're in high demand, which is pretty nice. Cool. Good to know. Yeah. Again, yeah. from the front lines, report <laughs> yeah. from the front lines. I boots like it. Boots on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> boots on the ground, Diana. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that's all well and good, but you know darn well the reason <laughs> I brought you here on this podcast. God, here we go. <laughs> is to play around and not my gig. Perfect. All Let's right. do this. All right, Diana. So. <laughs> 
violinist, famous violinist in the Moxie Strings. We're going to find out how much you know about the Moxie Hotel in Chicago. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> it was either this or like the Moxie the Soda. I wasn't right. sure which direction you were going to go, but yeah, the or, hotel. There's a movie that came out last year called Moxie. Which I, I almost went it. with, but I thought you probably saw it. So <laughs> I, I didn't actually. That would have been just as I would have been just as clueless. <laughs> All right. Well, this one I have a feeling, unless you've stayed in this high-end boutique, trendy hotel in Chicago, um, this may be completely foreign territory for you. One hundred percent. What I'm looking for. Okay. Here's your first question. Get two out of three right, and you win. <laughs> and there might just, be four. Just, so. a, just a general win. Okay, <laughs> just a general win. You just win. You're just a winner. Okay. The Moxie Hotel is known for encouraging people to check in at the bar. If you do, you get a complimentary welcome gift. Is it A, a cocktail from Bar Moxie, B, two chocolate chip cookies, as opposed to Doubletree, who only gives you one, Got it. Got it. Or C, a choice of a cocktail or an edible cannabis gummy in pot legal Illinois. Oh, gosh. Any one of those would be a kind of a win. <laughs> um, I'm going to say I want it to be C because I want to think that that would be really cool. That would be super cool and trendy, but unfortunately, it's just A, the cocktail, <laughs> the cocktail. from Bar Moxie's. They're not quite there <laughs> okay. yet. This That was sort of my uh, projection. Only a matter of time. Only a matter of time. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. All right. Probably because they're just too expensive, more expensive than the, than the cocktail. <laughs> so <laughs> to true. give away. <laughs> so true. All right. Second question. The restaurant in the hotel is called Zombie Taco, which of these wonderful tacos is not on the menu. A, the charred Korean beef taco. Sounds pretty good. B, yeah. bacon jalapeno taco. Or C, blackened salmon taco. <laughs> Which of these is not on the menu I at the zombie taco? I'm gonna go B. I'm not sure bacon and jalapeno works for me. Well, see, that's what I was thinking. That was my that was my trick question because of the charred and the blackened at zombie. But actually, they have a bacon jalapeno taco, oh, which I'm sure is wonderful. But they do not have a blackened salmon. Oh, and that would have been my choice, probably. <laughs> there you go. No worries. No worries. All right. Here's another question for you. <laughs> okay. The Moxie lobby offers which of these fine amenities. A, a soundproof podcast recording booth available for aspiring podcasters. Or B, a shuffleboard court. Or C, an in-house DJ spinning in the lobby. I'm really stuck by what I think it is versus what I really want it to be. I'm going to say C, because they're pretty trendy from what I understand. It, it is C, as a matter of fact, and it is also A and B, because they actually have <laughs> a soundproof podcast recording booth. No way. We could have been doing this whole podcast from the Moxie booth 
in Chicago. Had well, it shows know. shows how cutting edge you are, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, that sounds like it's be, it'd be worth a visit. I think so. I, I think it's you know I don't know you know I spend a lot of time in Chicago. Yeah. And because uh, all my kids are up there now. Oh, cool. And, uh, okay. And I've been you know wasting all my visits up there at the Holiday Inn. I don't know what I've been thinking. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Free cocktail. Exactly. Check in at the bar, and maybe we can get them to come up with some of our suggested um, uh, complimentary gifts instead. Or they just even just a salmon taco. I mean, come on, we'll find a way. <laughs> we'll find a spot Love for it. it. Love Diana, it. Diana, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. It's, I, I think. So much useful information, but so much great um, support for the heart and for the soul of what so many string players uh, are going through, are doing, are working towards. And I, I think it's just always wonderful to have somebody like yourself who is out there doing that kind of work to report back to us and to bring us these messages of uh, empathetic music making and the value of that to all string players. So thank you. Thank you so much, Tracy. <laughs> Empathetic music making might be the new headline on my <laughs> my personal website awesome. because uh, and I thank you for for hearing it and and yeah. making that the takeaway because that that's absolutely it. Yeah, I think we're in a very exciting season and we're all yeah. working in the same direction, which is is very very cool and awesome. heartwarming. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for this whole podcast, Tracy. It was, oh, it's been so fun to my hear pleasure. the inner workings. It really yeah. is my pleasure to to talk to people like yourself and to get everybody to just open up uh, what's in their minds and their hearts to the rest of the community. And uh, that's how we do it. So special. And there's nothing awesome. really like it. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Diana. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Yep. See you in Nashville. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group and feel free to post something interesting or comment on something and let your voice be heard. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on whichever podcast player you're using so you can easily find it again. And if you're a progressive string player yourself interested in the groovier aspects of string playing, please check out my books and videos at strumbowing.com. And have a look at my online courses at the strumbowinggrooveacademy.com. Thanks for listening and groove on.